Shabbat Shalom, everyone. The, um, this past week, there was a, an article written by Shai Held, interestingly, on uh, the Atlantic Monthly website. Shai Held is uh, the head of Pardes in Israel, and he highlighted in such an appropriate and clear way uh, something that is taking place not only in Canada, uh, but I would suggest to you probably in most of the Western world. And, but it dovetails, and I'm sure intentionally it was so given the timing that he wrote it in, it dovetails so perfectly with the Torah reading for this morning. This morning we read of the concluding, um, the concluding chapter in Yaakov, in Jacob's life. He is, of course, down in Egypt. He is surrounded by his, by his children, his grandchildren. These are the concluding sentences of his life. And to read over um, the story of how the chapter closes on his life is to be brought into an idea or image about old age and death that feels very remote from where we are in our time and place. Specifically, uh, there was a, a French philosopher, his name was Philip Ari. He wrote a book um, called The Idea of Death. It's uh, basically one of the classic foundational books on thanatology, which is the study of the idea of death. And Ari actually lays out throughout all of human history how the ideal or concept of death has been understood differently at different times in human life. It should be no uh, mistaken to us, and certainly not a confusion, that people who are old are often treated and are a reflection of how we deal with death. For the first time in human history over the past 70, 80 years, maybe a little more, it is highly unusual for the average person to see a dead body. Normally what happens is when someone is ill, we bring them to a hospital, we entrust them in the hands of people who care for them, we get news that they die, and then they're set off to a funeral home where the body is prepared, and maybe there is a glimpse here and there of the remains of the person we loved and cared for, but it is nothing along the lines of actually being in touch with someone who is dead. And by extension, I'll say to you that on an unprecedented level over the past 50 or 60 years, human history has done something that humans never did before. And that is, it is highly unusual for someone who is old and maybe in different degrees of infirmity for them to be in the care of their family. We too have professionalized, commercialized, commodified the care of people who can no longer care for themselves, people who are older. We have retirement homes, retirement communities. We have old age centers. We have hospitals that care for people who are old. Dedicated professionals who do this lovingly and, and in superb professional ways. But no longer do we directly, seldom, there are exceptions, but seldom care for these people. And this compartmentalization of death and of the elderly and people who are sick has exposed itself in the most horrendous of ways. Rather than what we see this morning where Jacob is surrounded lovingly, tenderly, caringly by his children and grandchildren, literally sitting at the foot of his bed and being looked after in the most royal of ways until he takes his last breath, 
surrounded once again by family and friends who hold on for the very last breath that he is going to take. Today that doesn't happen. And so the attitudes during the past almost year now with COVID and Corona Shai Held Road, I would encourage you to go to the Atlantic Monthly and read his article, Shai Held, H-E-L-D is the last name. You can type it in and do a search. That the dismissiveness that we have of people who are old, the lax attitudes we have towards the vaccination programs. In our applications and observances of wearing masks and closures, knowing that the most vulnerable to our reluctance to keep to these rules, that it is the elderly who will carry the greatest burden of infirmity and death can only be summed up in what Shai Held quoted in reading from an interview where one person commented and said, well, they're old anyway, so they're going to die. So why should I change my life? The Torah portion for this morning, embedded deeply in the concepts of Judaism, is that the old are not to be dismissed. The old are not chaffed to be thrown up in the air, to be taken wherever it is. But we shouldn't be surprised. Because the respect of those things that have come before us, be it in person or in ideas or in tradition, is something that is easily, readily disposed of in the culture that we live in. Perhaps one of the things that we'll learn or from and take from this past year, maybe, is the greater sanctity of those things that are more aged than us. I hope so. But I'm going to turn the page because I did actually make a promise I was going to talk about another idea as well. The idea is that this, uh, as of yesterday, effectively, officially, Israel crossed the one million vaccination mark. It now has a running hashtag in the Twitter world, hashtag vaccination. <laughs> That's what Israel is now being uh, billed out. And people have been asking me, how is it possible? How is it or why is it that Israel was able to achieve? such a rapid and remarkable scale of vaccination where more than 10% of the country now, Israel once again has a population of 9.2 million people, how more than 10% of the country has been vaccinated in just under, just under two weeks. And so I want to turn and provide two perspectives to this. One is uh, someone, if you uh, don't follow on Twitter, you should. His name is Yonatan Adiri. He tweets mostly in Hebrew, but Twitter does have, I think, a, Sherry, it's not in your head. It has a translation function, so you can um, translate him. Um, he is one of the must-follow people if you're interested in uh, health technology, health news. Um, he's listed as one of the brightest and best in the world uh, when it comes to health care and stuff like that. Very interesting guy. He did specify four ideas as to why Israel is where it is today in the vaccination process. He coined also the hashtag vaccination. So uh, call out to Yonatan Adiri. And then I also want to provide to you, before I get to his four big points, I want to explain to you a little bit about healthcare in Israel and why it's so different from what we're familiar with. For those uh, watching from the States, how it's different from in the States, those in Canada, how it's very different from Canada, and we'll take it from there. Okay. 
Israel, in the year 2015, Israel was listed as the uh, sixth healthiest country in the world. The sixth healthiest country. I actually wrote down some statistics for you. I'm going to share it with you. It was the sixth healthiest country in the world. It was ranked number four in healthcare efficiency in 2015. By measure, Canada was rated number 21. The United States was rated number 44. The problems in the states with healthcare has been well documented. The story of Israel's healthcare system, which is integral to understanding why and how Israel is where it is today, is important to understand. The first hospital in Israel was built in 1902, Sharit Tzedek Hospital. I'm a proud board member. Uh, they're undergoing remarkable expansion of the hospital. Next time, God willing, you're in Israel. And God willing, it'll be soon. Uh, you should definitely go to the campus and check it out. It is remarkable what they're doing. The most substantial change to the foundation of the health care that was taking place in Israel took during the third and fourth Aliyah to Israel. This was a critical and important Aliyah in the history of the state of Israel. Generally, when we talk about the various Aliyot or immigration waves to Israel, most people funk, uh, focus on the first and the second, the early 1900s, late 1800s, early 1900s, when the massive waves of the early Chalutzim came, the Russians and the Poles uh, looking to avoid and escape the Tsarist Russian uh, pogroms against the Jewish communities. But the third and fourth aliyot uh, to the state of Israel, 1919, 1924, radically important. Because why were they so important? First of all, they were important because the first few ways of the aliyot had already created infrastructure, so they built on it. The fourth aliyah was very important because who came in the fourth aliyah? Beginning in 1924, in the fourth aliyah, but later a little bit into it as well, was a significant wave of German Jewish immigrants. Why were they so important? Yes, I'm a little biased. But they were also important because they brought with them, actually remarkable, they brought with them the know-how and expectations of uh, proficiency that they had been raised in. So they came as doctors and lawyers and scientists. Yes, they fleshed out and built up Hebrew University and the Weizmann Institute and the Technion, and they developed and fleshed out the legal uh, professions and all the other things that we're familiar with in Israel today with a certain Germanic rigor that they brought. There's no question about that. They also brought with them the healthcare system that they were familiar with in Germany. You see, in the late 1800s, uh, the Kaiser Bismarck introduced uh, something that we would understand today as a national health care system. He called it, or the Germans called it, Krankenkasse. The Krankenkasse was a national purse or welfare system that would enable people of all, of all wealth to be able to have access to health care. Later on, we know that the British did this. The British also introduced a national health system in part because the pool of people that they, were, um, that they were drafting for the army and the navy, that the health was so poor that they, needed, they, they understood they needed to make them healthier in order to improve the health of the people that they were drafting to send off for war. Okay. 
The Krankenkasse, which is still in place in uh, Germany, by the way, functions in a very interesting way. Everyone has to pay. Nobody, nobody gets health care for free unless you have no income. If you have no income, you don't pay. But otherwise, everyone pays a portion of what their salary is. You don't pay it directly to the government. It goes through a private public system. In other words, there are a number of nonprofit HMOs, healthcare organizations that you pay into, and depending on how much you want to pay, you get perhaps a little bit more. But everyone is guaranteed a certain baseline of health care. In Israel, that is called a kupat cholim. In Israel, there are four kupot cholim today. Originally, I'm not going to go into it, but the Histradut had the big one. It was the big union in Israel. It broke up. Today, there are four kupot cholim. They are klalit, which is the oldest one, the biggest one. There is makabi, there is mi'uchedet, and I think there is le'umi. I think those are the four. So you join a kupat cholim, you pay into it. If you have more money and you want better service, if you want, more, uh, if you want more coverage, you pay this, you pay that. Israel also has private hospitals. If you want to go to a private hospital, you can, but you pay for it. And that is the state of Israel's healthcare system today. So now, knowing that it's ranked number four in the world in efficiency, Israelis are the sixth healthiest people according to a survey done by Bloomberg in 2015-2016, which is remarkable because, you know, more Jews have died in the kitchen than in the battlefield. So how is it possible that Jews are, that were among the sixth healthiest people in the world? This is the reason why, according, and I think, listen, he knows this really well. Yonatan Madiri, these are his four points as to why Israel is hashtag vaccination. Wish I could have a drum roll, because I feel like David Letterman. These are the four. You ready? Number one, the Kupat Cholim system in Israel started very early on in the 1930s in the Yishuv, created into national law with the founding of the State of Israel, ensured that no person is more than an hour away from emergency intensive care. It's a small country. You have a country that is a population of the city of New York in landmass the size of New Jersey. It's a small country. Most of the country lives in a very tight area. So everyone has, within easy driving distance, they can get to excellent medical care. All that supports the efficiency of the system working its way through. Number two, which I outlined to you before, the national health care law. Everyone has access to health care. Some may be able to buy better coverage for more things, but the basic essential services are excellent across the entire platform, meaning that if you make no money and you are basically granted into the national uh, health care service on account of having no income, or if you make 3 million shekel a year and you're paying 30,000 30, shekel a month for your, for your health care, Everyone on a certain baseline level has access to the same exact care. And more importantly, the system is not equally funded. The more money you make, the more money you pay. The less money you make, the less money you pay. But what this ultimately ends up creating is 
an excellent system where it is funded and carried the burden equally across the economic scale. Once again, if you make a lot of money and you don't want to go to a public hospital, you don't have to. But I'll tell you, I mean, hopefully you've never been to Israel inside of a hospital in Israel. The hospitals in Israel are phenomenal. Clean, cutting-edge, modern, excellently staffed. They are phenomenal. So it is very equitable and it is very well-funded. Number three, starting 20 years ago, Israel undertook a... Um, a determined and specific plan of creating a digitized platform for their medical system. People don't walk around with paper forms anymore. People don't have medical uh, files in paper anymore. Everything is digital. And why is this important? First of all, the government and the national healthcare system can get in touch with you immediately. They have all of your contact information. When it is time for them to tell you to come for your first shot or your second shot, it can all be done. And it's done in an automated fashion. The second point, which is really important, is you know who was vaccinated and who wasn't. Israel now has created a um, vaccination passport. Once you're vaccinated, it's in your system. Meaning that you can fly in and out of the country because the government knows that you were vaccinated. You can go to work without concern because the government knows that you were vaccinated and so forth and so on. It creates a chain of transparency and accountability and security within the country to know that people were vaccinated and now you can move on. And fourth, but certainly not least in all of this, is that um, Many countries have vaccines. I think I read that in New York State, they've only used 15% of the vaccines that they have. Many countries have vaccines. Not many countries are able to vaccinate. <laughs> Who would have thought? Shockingly, we know that last week in Canada, in the midst of the most horrific healthcare crisis of the past 100 years, the vaccination centers in Ontario were closed over the holidays. How and why that happens, I'll leave it for smarter people to figure it out. But it is inexcusable that such a thing would happen. But it highlights a fundamental break in the machinery of this healthcare system in our country. That it is one thing to have vaccines, it is another thing to be able to vaccinate. Israel was able to acquire vaccines, but Israel was able to vaccinate people. And here's the cycle that it feeds. Um, Israel had a concern that they thought that they were running out of vaccines because they were vaccinating people so quickly. I don't know if you read that. Then all of a sudden, last week here in the news, they secured a million more doses from Moderna. And then everyone else in the news is up in arms. How does Israel get a million more doses when everyone else is scrambling to get doses? And the answer in some way is, is that the pharmaceutical companies that are so desperate for data, they see that Israel is able to vaccinate people, and as a result, they release more dosages to them because they're actually vaccinating, not storing them somewhere, they're vaccinating people. The last point is that Israel, uh, like any country, when you go into a lockdown, there is an enormous financial price you're paying. 
in Israel, I think the number was for every week of what's called the seger, our lockdown, it's three billion shekel lost to the economy every week. So Israel is paying $30 a dose for the Moderna. The European Union was paying $14 a dose by contract. The United States, I think, is paying $9 a dose. In essence, what the Israelis did, they went to Moderna with a national credit card and said, charge us whatever you want. We just need the vaccine. And given that Israel's ability to actually vaccinate people, all of it fed one into the other. We can only hope that this trend continues. It is very important for Israel. Once again, it's a small country. It's a very small country. And it is critical that it gets back on its feet and its economy starts flowing again. It is also critical that the data that they're learning from the vaccination program in Israel is revolutionizing our attitudes about vaccines. One small idea, and then I promise I'm going to stop because you can talk for a long time on this. Um, the, the initial data about the effectiveness of the vaccine coming from Pfizer has be, is being revised now in light of the vaccination program from Israel. They argued, Pfizer believed, that there was only a 52% efficacy from the vaccine on the first dosage. Israel is now showing that the efficacy is greater than 90% after the first dosage. Okay. So, in the end, what I want to say to you is, first of all, we should be very proud of what Israel is doing. Number two, it is a benefit to the entire world that the Israeli vaccine program is strengthened and it continues. And number three, number three, to our leaders, political and otherwise in this country, vaccinate this country care for our elderly and those with special needs because we are only as good as how we treat our least fortunate in this country. Shabbat Shalom.